We've been in uh, John chapter 2 for a couple of weeks, and Lord willing, we'll finish it this morning. I'm not making any promises, uh, <laughs> but hey, I've only been doing it for three months. Uh, well, we looked last week at the wedding at Cana. We've actually been in that for a couple of weeks. And, and when we were looking at the wedding at Cana, we looked at how Jesus had gone from down on the other side, the east side of the Jordan River, and gone all the way up to northern Israel in the Galilee region, which was the northerly province, uh, the Samaria being the province in between Judea and, uh, and Galilee. And so he'd gone up there and he'd gone to this wedding and we saw that he performed his first miracle. Uh, we looked at that last week, a uh, miracle, not in the sense of what's miraculous for him, but for us, because he actually owns physics, the, the laws of physics, a, a miracle being where he would do something that would go outside of the laws of physics and we go, ooh, ah, uh, and yet for him, he created physics, so he can do what he wants there. So we look at that, and so he'd gone up to that region and had done this miracle, and his disciples believed, because they'd only been walking with him for a few days, and uh, his, the, we just looked at the whole deal. I don't need to go back into that, or I'll just reteach that whole deal. But now the scene shifts in, uh, in the narrative here in the Gospel of John, and in verse 12, we read, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, they went from the mountain region of Galilee, which is where Cana was. Remember, it was about six miles to the northwest of uh, Nazareth, or six, seven miles up there. And they dropped down out of the mountains then. They headed, headed kind of southeast down to the Sea of Galilee. So it says that they went down to the Sea of Galilee, uh, and they didn't stay there very long. Now in verse 13, now the Passover of the, Jew, of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he goes down to the Sea of Galilee and then it says he goes up to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is about, well, if, as a crow flies, it's about 80 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, uh, sort of to the southwest. And if you actually walking, it would be about 100, almost well, about 95 or so, either walking along the crest line of the, of the, the country or down through uh, and then coming back up into the mountains. It was about the same distance. So he's going a great distance here. I mean, Israel's a small country, uh, and yet this is not an insignificant walk. Again, you don't jump in a taxi or any of that. And so these guys had days on their hands that they would walk along the, the, the dusty roads and uh, in good weather or bad and go and be where they'd planned to be. So this is Jesus' first trip down to Jerusalem. It's interesting, the Gospel of John records that he went to three Passovers. Uh, in, here in 2.13, it says that he went to the Passover. Also in John 6.4, that he went to the Passover. And the third is in John 11.55, the last Passover, where he would indeed become the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. So uh, interesting. The other Gospel narratives uh, put him there at least once, but they don't go into near the detail because the three synoptic Gospels focus mainly on Jesus' Galilean ministry. Now, John is unique because it focuses very much on John's ministry in Jerusalem with the religious leaders, the Jews, as we've talked about. And so you got to understand from his perspective, there's a lot going on here in Jerusalem. It talks about, now we're going to go into him cleansing the temple. There's two main interpretations on that because the other gospel writers put him cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry. And John puts it at the beginning. And you can choose which one. I'll tell you which one I prefer. One is that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. And I believe that because it says that he cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry and he cleansed it at the end because they didn't mend their ways. They didn't change. And so that is a plausible explanation. John talks about it here at the beginning. The other is that John was more interested in the events than he was a chronological timeline and so that he put it at the beginning but again that doesn't seem to fit the narrative as well as the first interpretation so is he goes up to the the to jerusalem jerusalem is again it's up in the mountains it's surrounded by hills but it's if you look in the psalms you'll see many times it'll say a psalm of ascents and that was because the people would sing as they were going to the national feasts in israel they would sing the psalms many of them are songs it was a worship manual for, for Israel. And they would sing as they ascended into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was always up. 
That's why it says, and John has his geography down pretty well. He's, he goes down to the to Capernaum, to the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up to Jerusalem. And so just as a background, just to understand the geography here, they're going up. Jerusalem's quite high. It's actually on the crest. Uh, fertile plains, coastal plains uh, to the west, going all the way down uh, to the Mediterranean, and desert and then wilderness to the east. Jerusalem's right up on the top. Verse 14, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And he made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, it says when he made a whip of cords, I would imagine, because whips were generally made of leather, uh, and they had glass and steel. If you look at how he was flogged, it, it, right prior to his crucifixion, they used whips there. Uh, and, and there's a, a lengthy descriptions that you can look at. for the way. It was probably he went in there, he saw what was going on, and he was angry. He was mad. Let's go to the next slide. All right. I want you to look here at Herod's temple complex. This will give you just a little bit of an idea. If you look here along the the right side on the slide, uh, that would be the eastern wall. Thank you. (laughs) That'd be the eastern wall. Now you see the temple proper would be the small area in the middle there uh, where you see the building on the temple mount. And then there's what's called the Sorig, the dividing wall. That was as far as Gentiles could go. There was always a division division between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, this is really interesting. Paul, the apostle, is talking about how there is no longer Jew or Gentile in God's economy, in Christ's eyes. He says that he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Paul was talking about the Sorig. He was talking about the temple, that Jesus, in in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense, there's no more temple. We'll talk about that as we go. He broke down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Now below that, you see the court of the Gentiles, and that would be where all of these money changers and and the, the guys that were selling their goods, they set up their whole deal here. Below that's the royal colonnade. That would be this huge, long column deal. There were three rows of columns that were huge. They were five feet in diameter. These columns that, uh, it was just a very majestic building. And we'll talk about that more as we go as well. Now, so what was happening is Jesus walked in. The only error in this drawing is that there, it has two gates at the bottom. One of them had three portals and one had two uh, because it, they had to be out of the temple by sundown. And so there would be a, f- a rush of people coming out of the temple and they come out the three gates and the two. So there would be a greater capacity for them to go out. And so this shows two on each and that's just a minor detail that I just noticed after I got this all set up. <laughs> so anyway, so Jesus would probably have walked in on the south entrance to the temple through the royal colonnade and out into the court of the Gentiles and seen this whole thing with animals making noise and you know, the tables and, and the, the people doing all of their business says that they were doing business there. Now, they didn't always, that wasn't always the case. It, prior to Jesus' day, uh, the, the, the whole thing, this is called Annas' Bazaar, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But prior to this, they would have had this whole market over on the Mount of Olives. But with a million plus people coming to Passover, they wanted to make it real convenient to do business. And they justified, the religious leaders justified in their minds that they would do it here. Uh, this was called Annas's Bazaar, and it was quite a spectacle. They had reduced the things of God to a marketplace. And oh, don't let me go there as far as some of the things I see on television and some of the ministries, alleged ministries that I see that are just out there trying to, to rake in the dollars. Uh, you know, when somebody's trying to get permission from their board to get a new jet and all of this other stuff, it's like, it's craziness. And, and, and again, I'm not saying that every ministry is that way, but there is so much marketing of God that goes on. I've been in the advertising business for north of 40 years, guys, and I know what it is to package things. And I, for me, I've always had a personal conviction. I don't even put a bumper sticker on my car. And it's not because I'm afraid of going too fast, which I never do. Um, <laughs> 
And someone asked me one time, so how far is it to church? Oh, it's 31 miles. How long does it take you to get there? Oh, they're doing the math. And it said 25 minutes. And, <laughs> and so anyway, but seriously, I mean, these guys were essentially marketing God. And Jesus walks in and he gets hot with anger. Now, Something about this too, you know, so many times people have this idea of Jesus. I mean, like Robert Powell, remember that Jesus of Nazareth, that movie in the 70s? And he was just like this Irish guy with reddish hair and great big wet blue eyes. And he was always looking, you know, had this look. Isaiah 53 says, no, that wasn't the case. It says there's nothing comely about him that would attract us to him. He didn't look like a star. He looked like a Jewish guy. And so, and that's just, that's free. But the point is he walks in and he sees this whole thing going on and he knows what's happening. And it wasn't just the money changers that he was mad about. It was because the people were being ripped off. So let's go to the next slide. I want to talk about this. What was happening with the money changers? And and again, this is sort of a rabbit trail that I took because I like coins. (laughs) But the coin of that day in the Roman Empire was called the denarius. It was... Uh, about one and a half of them would equal a half of a shekel. And when the people went to the temple, they were required, and it was stated in the law, to pay the temple tax. That's how the temple functioned. It's how they had the money to do what they did. But what would happen here is they would take a Roman denarius, the people would have this currency, because people would come from all over the empire to go to these national feasts, especially the Passover. It would be a pilgrimage for these people. They didn't have very much. I mean, it was an agrarian society and the people were just living to get by, but they would save for the whole year to make this trip to Jerusalem. And then they would get there and they would have the Roman denarius. Now, I brought this with me. Uh, This is the same coin you see here. This is a 2,000-year-old Roman denarius that um, a friend got at an antiquities coin dealer in London for me one time and gave it to me as I kind of treasure it. Uh, don't take it out very often, but if you'd like to look at it after the service, it's exactly the same one. This is a denarius that has Caesar Augustus' image on it, and uh, it has his grandsons on the back. There's two grandsons there. I don't remember their names right off, but uh, they died before they could ascend to the throne. They were being groomed for ruling in the Roman Empire, but they both died, so it kind of ended up being more of a limited edition coin for that reason, because they had to remint and put something else on the back. So This would be the common currency. By the way, this is a denarius is worth about a day's wage. Jesus was sold for 30 of these. About a month's wages. It was the price of a slave. You can look back uh, in um, the Old Testament and it tells us uh, that for about the price of a slave, in Exodus chapter 21, uh, Jesus was sold when he was traded to the religious leaders by Judas. So let's go to the next slide. Now, what they did, the reason they had money changers was there was only one coin that was minted in Israel. And it was called the Tyrian shekel. It was originally minted in Tyre, which was up north, way to the northern end of the country. Actually, actually in modern day Lebanon, it's that far north. But in those days, it was part of the empire. So it was considered part of, Israel. Uh, And so in Exodus, there's a a passage that talks about the half a shekel temple tax. So what they would call this was the shekel of the sanctuary. So now if you went in, um, let me back up a little bit. You've probably heard of uh, the Jewish, he was a secular historian named Josephus, and he wrote a great deal about what was happening in the first century. And he tells us about uh, the bazaars of Annas. Uh, Annas was an old man, a high priest, and he had four sons and one son-in-law who was also Caiaphas, who was the high priest the year that Jesus was betrayed. When he went on trial, he went to Annas' house first. Annas uh, examined him. It was, he went through six mock trials. They were all a sham. Uh, and the second one, he, Annas sent him across to Caiaphas. Their houses were up on the Mount, of, uh, Mount Zion, uh, essentially a roadway between them. We've been, my wife and I had been to Caiaphas' house. There's a, actually kind of a dungeon cell that they, they would have lowered Jesus into on a rope. You can't get out of that thing. Uh, and, and we stood down there. They have a little stairway down there now, but we stood down there and looked at this place, and it was where Jesus was sent to Caiaphas's house after he was examined by Caiaphas's father-in-law, Annas. Now, Annas had been deposed as a high priest, 
years before. So he's an old guy, but he has these puppet high priests. He's still running the show, very firmly running the show in Jesus' day. Okay, so th- all of his sons-in-law and his, or his sons and his son-in-law were high priests. And his family made a huge profit off of their temple business. They were the ones that moved from the Mount of Olives. He moved it into the temple proper, into the temple complex, into the court of the Gentiles. Uh, and people from all over the empire would bring their Roman and Greek coins with images of the emperor on them, as we just showed you here. Uh, and those coins were considered to be inadmissible for the temple because they were unclean because of the pagan images of the Caesars that were on them. And so that was the rationale. It wasn't looked at as currency that was good for the temple. They had to have the whole separate deal for the shekel. And the shekel was moved from Tyre to Jerusalem. Uh, and I think it was about 16 or so, yeah. 16 BC, and some of these dates are sketchy, but that's as near as I could figure by examining a number of documents about when it was moved to Jerusalem. So they would have to be exchanged. So what these guys would do, the money changers, is they would charge an exchange rate. If you've ever gone to a foreign country, you pay a certain amount over for your currency, to, to, and it's, but they had an ex, exorbitant exchange rate and it was essentially a usurious exchange rate. They were using the people. And not only that, it was, remember, it was a half shekel. And it was about one and a half denarius that equaled a half shekel. And so the people would never have changed. So they charged an exchange rate, and then they charged them again for change, to make change. So these guys were just raking it in. And then with the animals, what would happen with the animals, the sacrificial animals that the people would bring, if you were wealthier, you could bring an ox or you could sacrifice. And again, for Passover, it would be a lamb. But if you were poorer, you could use a pair of turtle doves. Remember, Jesus' parents, they sacrificed, uh, at which were pigeons. <laughs> Essentially, it's a turtle dove. And so you could, there was so, sort of a sliding scale of what you could afford that would be acceptable for the sacrifice. Well, if you brought your own animal, to the feast and you got here, you had to have it checked out by the priests. They would have to uh, deem it acceptable. And they never did. See, you had to buy their animal. And sometimes I was reading one, one account said that they would charge up to 15 times the value of an animal so that you could get one that was spotless and, and without blemish. Remember, that was the requirement. And so these guys, again, they were raking it in there. So Jesus walks into this whole mess. And yeah, Annas had truly turned the Temple Mount into a bazaar. Uh, they were making, if you, if you average it in U.S. dollars, they were raking in annually tens of millions of dollars. It was a huge business for these guys. And you wonder why Annas got so upset with Jesus. But you know, the truth is the truth. Something I want to mention here, when, when Jesus takes this, excuse me, this whip, and he turns over the tables and he, and he cleanses the temple mount, uh, he's filled with a righteous anger. And I want to submit to you, that's something to be careful of. I, as a younger guy, uh, I could walk into my house and if my kids saw a particular look on my face, man, they scattered like cockroaches. <laughs> they were they were gone. Couldn't find them. Uh, because I had a really, I mean, before the Lord got a hold of my temper, I had a horrible temper. And then after I got saved, I started trying to make excuses. Well, it's kind of a righteous anger as a young Christian and full of zeal without knowledge. <laughs> and, and I began to realize as time went by and began to pray, Lord, help me to be, as James says, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And to God's glory, he took that temper from me. Yeah, it fires up every now and then. Somebody cuts me off on the freeway or something. But no, I don't. This just came to mind. Um, drive with me. My wife will tell you. But seriously, folks, righteous anger is almost never the case with me. I don't know if it is with you. Now, I, am I filled with a righteous anger when I hear about children being murdered at abortion clinics, things like that? Yeah, I am. It makes me angry. And I believe that that's something, that it's, it, and the qualification for that is it something that makes God angry? Does it grieve his heart? Is it something that he would, you know, make a stand for? And yes, Jesus made a stand for this because these people, these poor people, 
were being completely ripped off, sincerely wanting to come and to worship at the temple. I mean, to think about it, all your life you wanted to make that one pilgrimage. You know you can go once in your life, and you make that pilgrimage, and you get there, and these hucksters are doing everything they can to fleece you from what little you have. Maybe whatever you had to get home on. But you're there now. And so Jesus saw this, and he was upset. It says in the disciples in verse 17, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered to him and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So now, Again, I've mentioned this several times, but it's really important for us to try to keep in front of us. This is the first time these people had gone through these things. Okay, I mean, we look at it and go, ha ha, he's talking about his resurrection, you know, and it's, yeah, I get a star. But these people would go, what is he saying? Destroy this temple. I mean, he's in the temple. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And I mean, they would be thinking, what kind of a joker is this? What is he saying? And it says that the, the Jews said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they, what he had said to them, and they believed the scripture that, and the word which Jesus had said. So I looked it up. Herod's temple was a remarkable a remarkable structure. It was much larger than Solomon's temple. The, the footprint on uh, the mountain there, was it had been expanded significantly. The nation had grown significantly, and, and Herod wanted to make sure that the people had room. Excuse me, it was 46 years in the making at Jesus' day when, when these guys told him that, but it would be another decades 30 years before it was finished. It was finally finished in about 63 to 65 AD. And then the Jewish revolt was in 66. And in 70, the Romans totally wiped it clean. The whole Temple Mount, they totally took it out. So it was over 80 years to construct this thing. And the workforce was 18,000 men. Uh, when my wife and I looked at just the foundation stones, you can go behind the western wall there, just the foundation stones of Herod's temple were like 45 feet long. Uh, hundreds of tons, like two 767s is what they would weigh. They were huge, huge stones, and that's just one. And you couldn't put paper between them. I mean, they were so crafted and fitted together. This was a magnificent structure. Herod was known. He was, a, he was an architectural genius. I mean, this wasn't all that he built. There is a town right next to Bethlehem that's south of Jerusalem called Herodian. Look it up. Uh, I remember looking south of Jerusalem, standing up on the Mount of Olives, and looking down south, down along the ridgeline, and, and I saw this weird mountain and it was like symmetrical. And I thought, well, that reminds me of like a cinder cone to a volcano because they're always symmetrical, you know. We lived near Mount Shasta and there's a cinder cone that's, that's real v, up, upside down V-shaped. And I learned that that was another one of his marvels. It, it was an engineering thing that he did. He had a palace on top of this man-made mountain. He said, build me a mountain. They built a mountain. They called it Herodian. And there's this palace on top. It's where Herod is buried, actually. Uh, another one is Caesarea Philippi. Magnificent city that he built on the Mediterranean where the palace actually extended out over the water. I mean, this guy was, he was just a brilliant, brilliant, evil, but brilliant man. And so as far as the temple goes, I'm going to look at three things that pertain to the temple as it applies to us. The first is the temple is not a singular physical locale. Do you realize that when Jesus did this, that God was no longer into the temple? And we'll talk about that. I mean, there's a catch. Because Jesus was the first one whose body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 4, we'll get there one day. Um, when Jesus is with the Samaritan woman, uh, they're talking and she says, our fathers worshiped in verse 20 to 23, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you say the uh, Jews and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. They were on Mount Gerizim. It was up by Shechem. Uh, Get into that in a moment. Uh, You worship that which you do not know, and we worship, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Everything shifted when Jesus showed up. We know that we are the temple. And the temple is no longer a physical locale. I mean, if you look at the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, John clearly says, and I didn't see a temple in it. Because it's the Lord and the the Father and the Son, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. They're the source of light. They're there in place of the temple because there is no need for a dwelling place for God. That was the whole intention of the tabernacle, remember, back in the Old Testament? It, it, they built it out in the, in the wilderness and it ended up in Shiloh for a few hundred years and then it was destroyed by the Philistines and they took the ark and then it took a while for it to get back to Jerusalem and the whole story there. But the point is, God had always arranged for a dwelling place for himself with man. But because man's sins were covered under the law, they were never eliminated as they are with Jesus. Man's sins were covered. God was always still separate. He was always still separate because his sin separated him from God. That's why it was mentioned this morning when Jesus went to the cross that the the veil in the temple was torn from the top down. In other words, God's work of tearing that veil uh, to open full access now is possible to the Father, to the presence of God. So, Now, there is no physical locale. The catch is that physical locale is you and me as the dwelling place of God, as the place that houses the presence of God. What do you think God's representation on this planet in this age is? It's you. It's me. It's not a place. It's it's, it's not a bunch of bricks. The, The second thing we want to talk about here is the temple isn't made with human hands. In Acts 17, 24, here's the Apostle Paul. He's on Mars Hill in Athens uh, speaking to the Areopagus, uh, the learned men, the scholars, the ones who would probably stroke their chin and say, hmm, very interesting, Paul. And and that's what they did, actually, when he gave this brilliant message on Mars Hill. And I could go into that because there's some some glitches with that as well, but that's for another day. Um, Now you're going to wonder. But... The point is, here he is, he's on Mars Hill, he's giving this brilliant talk with these guys, talking about the statue he saw on his way up to the unknown God. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So even the Apostle Paul, when he says this, the temple is still standing. It's still there in Jerusalem. And here he is in Greece, in southern Greece, Talking about that, he's thinking about that, but he realized that the temple was for all intents and purposes done. It was done because this is after Jesus had gone to the cross. That's why Jesus says the hour is coming and now is. Now is, he was there physically in person, but the hour is coming was talking about when his hour would come, when he would go to the cross, when he would atone for sin and open the way for us as cleansed vessels to receive and, and have the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of God himself inhabit us. You really start thinking about that. I mean, that is, that's, a, that's intensely heavy. I mean, it's just, what a marvelous truth. So, and in 1 Peter, Peter says, coming to him as to a living stone, not these stones like the foundation stones, But a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, he says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful passage. And what he is saying, he's saying, remember that temple, that one that was made out of rocks? No, no, no. That one where they sacrificed animals? No, no, no. No, not the case any longer. Not in the new covenant. 
No, you are a temple. You're made with living stones. And we together are being built up into this, this spiritual house. And we offer up spiritual sacrifice, not animal sacrifices, spiritual sacrifice. Because we know from the book of Hebrews that that sacrificial system stopped as well. Because Jesus is better. As our high priest, he no longer has to sacrifice animals to atone for sin. He is once for all the sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The question is whether or not people receive that and receive the gift of God. We'll talk about that next week, next Sunday morning. We're going to talk about the gift of God. And that's really becomes the question. And so here, Peter is saying again, the temple isn't something that was made with human hands. Old covenant, yes, everything was external in the old covenant. If you look and contrast the old covenant law, do it and live. And the new covenant, grace, it's done. So love, therefore, there are huge differences. One of the primary differences is there's no longer a physical temple that people have to go to to have an experience with God. He says, no, I'll make it easy for you. I'm going to come into your heart. And you can worship me in spirit and in truth wherever you are. The third thing we want to look at is through the atoning work of Christ, the spiritual temple superseded the physical. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says in verse 19 and 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Question. I get you guys thinking. I know it's Sunday morning. It's your day off. Why did Jesus call this temple my father's house? And he gets so upset if it was no longer effective as a dwelling place for God. Interesting. And the answer is this. The temple had been consecrated to God. I looked up the definition of consecrate and desecrate. Uh, to consecrate is to make or declare something sacred, to set apart and dedicate formally to a divine purpose. Read that again. To make or declare something sacred, to set apart and to dedicate formally to a divine purpose. The temple was dedicated to God. It was dedicated to Yahweh. And for that reason, because it had been consecrated, Jesus was upset because the people, all they knew was to worship God in Jerusalem at that time. He had not yet gone to the cross. What was happening, though, through Annas's creeps, creepion, I think that's the Greek word. Um, no, it's not. To treat, is they were desecrating the temple. And, and the, the, again, the dictionary, dictionary definition of desecrate is to treat a sacred place or thing with violent disrespect to violate. God had set, I mean, all the way back to Solomon. I mean, even David, when David wanted, he said, God, I want to build a house for you. Because David was a man after God's own heart. But God said, you know, David, you can't do that. I, I am going to bless you. And, and through your seed, this, the Messiah will come. But you have too much blood on your hands. And so he allowed David's son, Solomon, to build the first temple. And through that, the temple had been consecrated to God. And then when the people were in 536, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the city, the three deportations of Jews in, in 500 and some years before Christ, and, and I mean, they really, they damaged, heavily damaged the temple. And they looted it with all of the temple artifacts and all of that. And then remember, uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people came back and they restored. They actually did a renovation on that on Solomon's temple. You could, some call it the second temple. Some call it a renovation of the first. And I'm not going to wrangle over that. But the point is, the temple had come back. And then, down through the ages, they had worked in the temple. It was never fully restored. Uh, and then, until Herod's day. And then, with Herod and his 80-some year project with the temple. The people had routinely, I mean, you go back into the major prophets 
And you see, I mean, you look at Jeremiah. I mean, part of what Jeremiah, I mean, that poor guy, he had a 45-year ministry and there was not one bit of fruit. How'd you like that? I mean, that would be, that would be a tough thing. No wonder he lamented. But if you go back and you look, and, and I mean, some of the things that God says through him, is says, you people are coming into my courts and you are doing what? What's in it for us? What, what, what's the takeaway, guys? When I think about this to consecrate or to desecrate, we can do the same thing with this temple. Do I live a life that's set apart? Do I live a life that is set apart for his use, for his glory, because I want this temple to be consecrated to God? Yeah, as I make mistakes. I blow it. All of us do. And yet, is the overwhelming desire of my heart to live a life that's set apart for him? Or do I perhaps desecrate it? And Paul, in this context, in, in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about sexual sin. And it's not just fornication or adultery. It could be through things like pornography, pornea. It, it, it could be any number of things that I could desecrate this temple with. He talks about that form of sin being unique because sin that man commits with his body, not outside of his body. He says it's like joining Christ to a harlot, that type of a thing. That's the word picture he gives. But you don't have to be involved in the heavy artillery of sin to be living a life that is not consecrated to him. What he's talking about here and, and what the, the word implies in our lives is to, are you all in? It's simply are you all in? And it's not a head trip. I mean, yeah, of course, we understand in context we're under God's grace. And yet he calls a people to be set apart. To be set apart for his glory, for his use. We are the representation of him on this earth. Understanding, again, you know, and I almost, sometimes I get tired of saying it, but it's absolutely essential that we say, you know, we all blow it. We all stumble in many ways, the Bible tells us. And yet I don't ever want to be in a place where I use that as a covering for sin. See? I want to live a life that is set apart for him. And, and you know what? It's not a hard life. It's a great life. It's a powerful life. It's a life that's lived above the cut. So am I consecrated or am I involved in the act of desecration? I'll share something with you guys. I don't want to ever have a problem with pornography. I have a program on my computer that my son as an accountability partner that if I were to stray into that, yeah, I'll tell you what, it protects me from temptation. He gets an email. Think I want to have that on my head? I mean, let alone God sees all of the things that are done in secret, guys. But I'll tell you, men, that is a problem that crosses every line. And, and I would absolutely welcome you Go to one another or come to me. Confidentiality is absolutely assured. If you struggle with that, I'd love to help you find remedies for that that will help to bolster your accountability in that area because we want to live lives that are set apart. And I don't want my son to get an email either. But the point is, uh, there are things that we can do in being accountable, mutually accountable with one another. And we'll look at, there's a condition to that, and we'll look at that in a moment. When we look at Jesus, we look at him also as being the discerner of hearts. You see here in verse 23, this is now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now remember, John says he did many things which are not recorded in this book. So you can only imagine that Jesus would just simply walk up to someone and heal them at will. I talked about apostolic authority here last week or the week before. It's that I believe that, that we're not in a dispensational position with the miraculous. I do want to make one qualifier. The apostles themselves had the ability to heal at will. I mean, look at Peter, look at Paul, and look at these guys. I mean, they, they had some apostolic authority. I believe that part of it stopped when the church had been started. God used that to sort of jumpstart the church. Does he still do the miraculous? Yes, absolutely. But I want to make a point of clarification on that. Uh, it's a sovereign thing that he does. It's not something that I can go do at will, like I can shoot lightning bolts off my fingertips and heal somebody. It's something that he does through us. Just uh, 
again, point of clarification, and, and nobody even busted me on that. That's good. Anyway, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did. But here's an interesting thing. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. I like the way this is rendered in the Holman and in the New American Standard Bibles. It says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. I have discovered that it's wisdom to be selective, and I'm not, I want to I say this properly, to be selective in, with the, the people in the circle of sphere in my life of close relationships, to be selective with who I entrust the deep things with. Why? Because I know what I'm capable of and I know what is in man. Like I said, we're either serving God and living a life that's set apart for him or we're not. Part of living a life that's set apart for him is people identifying you and knowing that you are somebody who is trustworthy, that they can entrust and that is something, I'll tell you what, guys, uh, and you'll hear me say it more than once, grace is absolutely free. Unmerited favor, I love you because I choose to love you, not because you're earning somehow meriting my love. That's how God loves us, and that's how he wants us to love one another. Grace is free. Trust is earned. Grace is free. Trust is earned. I don't walk up to a stranger, and neither would you. It would not be wise to walk up to some stranger on the street and tell them, and I've never been to jail, okay? But let's say I had been. And I, go, really honest. <laughs> um, I've never even been sued. But I mean, but I, if I walked up to somebody on the street and I told them, you know, I, hey, I went to prison for car theft. Could I use your car? You know, I, you know, they, it's not wise. I mean, God, he tells us to use wisdom. We're called to, to use the minds that he's given us. And Jesus did not entrust himself to man for he knew what was in man. Does that mean he didn't love them? Absolutely not. And we'll look at that in chapter three because God so loved the world that Jesus came. What it does mean is that there is everything right about exercising wisdom in our daily walk with the people with which we have to do. He says to be wise as a serpent and yet innocent as a dove. And just practically speaking, use wisdom. Use wisdom. And I'm not saying we go around distrusting other people. I'm saying that we just don't throw all of our trust into people because I'll tell you what, my trust has been shot more than once and I would imagine that yours has been too. And it's just something that it's sort of one of the casualties of walking and living in a fallen world. Especially those outside the household of faith, but also with those inside, be careful. Just a word to the wise. In context here, Jesus looks at these people and he doesn't commit or entrust himself to them because he knew that signs and wonders well, that's what he was about. Remember, we talked about it last week. These signs, these attesting signs, signs that pointed to the fact that he was Messiah. And there would be a certain amount of people that, in, that wanted his trust, that wanted him to come along, wanted him to kind of be part of their agenda because he was doing these things. And, and their faith would not be deeply rooted. If you're Faith is there because you want to see signs and wonders. That's what the, the religious leaders were doing. They're saying, well, what sign do you show us? Have you not seen all the things that I'm doing? I mean, that was, that'd be, if I was Jesus, is what I'd tell them. Open your eyes because their eyes were really closed. They did not have eyes to see. And Jesus talks about that. In Luke chapter 8, when he gives the parable of the soils, some people call it the parable of the sower, but it's not about the sower, it's about the soils. It's about four conditions of the human heart. When he does that there, the, the disciples come up to him and ask him to explain after he's finished. And they say, what are you talking about, Jesus? 
And he says to you, it's been given to no one to understand the, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to the rest it's in parables. In other words, some people are not going to get it because they have not come into a place of faith to where they have spiritual eyes. He says, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. To him who has eyes to see, let him see. He says that all through the Gospels. He knew that these people would not, their faith would not be fully developed yet. And truly their faith would not be full blown until after he had gone to the cross and the Holy Spirit had come in and given them understanding. Remember it says after he resurrected, after he rose from the dead, they understood what he was talking about. We just looked at that here in John 2. So he holds back. He doesn't hold back his love, but he holds back from entrusting them with these things because he sees that their faith is not fully developed. So we look at John chapter 2 to summarize as we wrap up this morning. We looked at the wedding at Cana. We looked at the, the first century Jewish marriage and betrothal process. We looked at how much language is in the Bible that talks about that. A great deal of the New Testament language hangs on an understanding of the betrothal and wedding uh, of the first century. We went from there, we looked at the actual wedding itself where Jesus' mother is there. She evidently has some authority and she says, look at these water pots. Uh, you know, we, we're out of wine. There's, there's nothing going on here. I mean, what a shameful thing for this family. And Jesus swoops into the rescue. And he not only makes wine from water, he makes really good wine to the point where the head waiter is blown away and he thinks, wow, you guys, you really duped us. You brought the best wine out last instead of first. And the people marvel. I mean, remember it says that the guys that were there when he made the water into wine, they understood, but the head waiter didn't. And they probably had these looks going back and forth. So we looked at that and we looked at, well, how does that apply to us? And we see that wine in the scripture is symbolic of joy. And Israel's joy was not, it had run out. Our joy has been made full, the Bible tells us. This is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full. The great commandment. You know, we can't carry out the great commission without walking in the great commandment. It's not possible. You cannot. Your life is not going to shine into the life of another unless you're loving them. Because his love is what binds, the tie that binds. So we looked at that, and now we've looked here at him cleansing the temple where he goes in and he makes this impromptu whip out of rope and he just turns everything upside down because the people were being ripped off in the name of religion. How much of that do we see out there in the religious landscape of today? It happens all the time. Be wise. Be wise with where you put your money. Be wise with where you put your energies and your time and your devotion. Be involved in ministries that have integrity. Interesting, the, the church where I uh, spent 20 years, uh, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the fact that we do this here. It was a, a practice of the church that, we, that I was a part of, and, and today, even today, um, they never passed the plate. They never received an offering. We just didn't. I was a pastor there for many years. And, um, and, I, and again, it's, it's, I'm not, it's not an indictment on churches that do. It's a convenience thing. But I loved the fact that we didn't just because what we'd say is, you know, if God's the God he says he is, and we truly are his people and this is his church, then he's going to take care of it. Coming here, it's something that Stacey and I have been excited about and coming here. We know he's going to take care of us. We know that. There's no question. It's a settled issue in our minds. Does it look like it did when I worked in the corporate world? No. But that's all right. Because he is the God that we say he is. Love this time. Love the, the fact that uh, it's been, I've been here for, this is almost three months, two and a half months. Just uh, got a couple of minutes before we close. We're going to be launching, Stacy and I are going to be launching a home fellowship group in January. Hopefully, Lord willing. I mean, I, it's funny. I had it set to go into the bulletin and she uh, asked me if I would take it out because she didn't want me to be pressuring her. <laughs> but <laughs> you know how wives are. I mean, I do. I mean, okay, honey, it's out. But um, we're looking forward to that. Uh, something that's always been a, a, a real thing that's near to my heart. Um, just as, as a Christian, as a brother, and as a pastor is, is uh, 
in our home fellowship groups. I mean, they're a vital part of the ministry. There's a lot that can go on there that can't go on here. And so we give great place to that. So um, we'll have more information on that as we go. Uh, probably be a Friday evening thing. Um, but uh, yeah, looking forward to next week, to Christmas, to see what the Lord has for us there. And then on to the new year. Uh, that's why we put out the, the Bible in a year deal now. Uh, grab one on your way out if you're interested in it. If you're not, grab one anyway. I printed plenty. Um, but seriously, I mean, it'd just be a great time to... Uh, uh, the thing I like about that, and I'll tell you this real quick, uh, is it's not by month. It, it has 365 entries. It's two pages. And you know what? It's something that I always felt really strongly about is if you want to have the discipline of going through the Bible, going through the, the Word in a year, don't get bummed out or tripped up if you have a day or a few days or whatever where you haven't been able to do it. Life gets busy. It gets in the way. And I like that we don't have this spelled out by month because then it's like, oh, man, it says it's the 15th, and the last time I did it was on the, the uh, 10th or the 9th or whatever, and so I've got a lot of catching up to do. No, just pick it back up. And it's just a place to line out or to check off every entry as long as it takes. So it's a guilt-free Bible in a year or Bible in 13 months plan, <laughs> however you want to look at it. Anyway, with that, guys, let's pray. Father, just thank you. Thank you, thank you that you are so good to us, that you, by your Holy Spirit, just lift us up. I pray for myself. I pray for each one here, Lord, those perhaps watching or listening online, I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts this week, that you would fill us with your joy, that we would overflow, Lord, that when people bump into our lives, that we would spill Jesus onto them, that they would know the reason for the hope that lies within us is you. Just thank you for this time and thank you for each one here. Pray that you'd go out. Give us a blessed week as we're involved in uh, many of us in, in the bustle of the season. Lord, help us to stay focused and centered on uh, the fact that you are the reason for all of it. So as we approach the incarnation, celebrating the time when God became man, we pray that our lives would simply glorify you. Give us the ability to live lives that are consecrated unto you, and Lord, that we could uh, simply be in but not of this world. We have to have you to do it, Lord, uh, and we know that's what you want to do. So I pray that you'd find vessels that are yielded to your work and to your use. Thank you, Lord. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.